Hey, this is Chris. Welcome to the uh, Samurai Archives podcast. Uh, giving you just a little introduction to this one. This is uh, actually part two of our uh, Asian Studies conference, the AAS conference that we attended. Uh, this one, uh, basically, this takes a, picks up where the last one left off. After a, a few more seminars, we uh, got back into it. And we basically wrap up the lecture on the Buddhist monks and the Murugamachi Shogunate. Uh, also, uh, I talk about a linguistics uh, seminar that I attended. And Nate covers... A forum that he uh, attended in regards to basically digital uh, copies of original records. Uh, it's uh, the Japan Center for Asian Historical Records, and they actually have a website which is uh, that'll be on the blog. Also mentioned are a couple other things uh, that uh, the web uh, web addresses are actually on the blog, so you can just check the blog for that. And the uh, blog address is samuraiarchives.podbean.com. Again, that's uh, samuraiarchives.podbean.com. So that's the podcast website. That's where you'll find all the links that are mentioned in the podcast. And also, if you need to get a hold of us, uh, of course, we have our Twitter feed, at Samurai Archives. Also have our uh, email address, which is samuraipodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, then there's the forum, there's the blog, and pretty much everything else. So uh, we're easy to get a hold of, put, put it that way. So without further ado, here's the podcast. Oh, we're back for the next uh, segment here. We had to uh, skip out to uh, hit, hit up another you know, conference. So uh, I guess we had left off with uh, Zen Monk Painters and the Muromachi Shoguns with uh, Fukushima Tsunenori from Hanazono University, which, uh, eh, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was interesting enough, but I uh, wasn't paying close enough attention. But I did record all of it, so I can go back and listen to it later. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest. I kind of zoned out during uh, some of it because, uh, you know, I was more focused on uh, really interested in what uh, Ito had said about the, the, the use of Buddhist monks as uh, envoys. So um, shifting back to the uh, to the art, um, I know a little bit about uh, some of the artists he was talking about, like Seshu and, and, and so forth, but not a whole lot. So uh, it was kind of um, hard to follow if you didn't have the background in it and definitely um you know that's great different shoguns patronized different artists and had their own little uh patronage relationships and and so forth and uh uh, certainly applaud people who who find that interesting and study it but uh it's 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 a little out of my lane so um i I don't have a whole lot of comment other than that yeah i think all in all the whole that whole section though was pretty interesting yeah it was uh now well we we should certainly though mention i mean we um the the last speaker was uh um kitagawa tomoko yeah i got her name right here yeah kitagawa tomoko she is a uh, professor i guess at harvard university yeah professor at harvard um she was kind of brought up to kind of tie everything together All, all all the other presentations were in japanese and uh she she kind of tied it up a little bit in english and I also I have her entire presentation uh, recorded as well, yeah, so that'll probably yeah. be released here at some point. Um, one of the things that, uh, that that we noted is uh, in the introduction that the moderator gave her, uh, he pointed out that uh, she is uh, wrapping up, uh, I guess, to soon to be published uh, book, uh, and and her research topic is uh, Hideyoshi's concubines. Mm, yeah, and so I definitely uh, my ears perked up when I heard that. Yeah, we're, we're hoping yeah. to track her down to kind of get a little more information on it. So. Uh, 
either tonight, uh, assuming she's at the one tonight. Uh, we saw her walk by and it didn't really occur to us to stop her, so maybe tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, want to at least get uh, some information about when we can expect that coming out because, uh, uh, you know, certainly any research, especially if it's in English, on uh, uh, Yodo and uh, the, the rest of the... Uh, <laughs> the rest of the... the, 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 the rest of Hideyoshi's women uh, <laughs> yeah. would be... Uh, Certainly interesting, not only from a uh, political standpoint and how that relates, which is mostly what what you hear it in, but uh, but also just a daily life and and uh, you know what kind of lifestyle they had and, and so forth. Yeah, so, so we'll see if we can catch you there. So uh, you heard it here first. This That's is right. The, the, the breaking late breaking news. news. Yeah, late breaking That's news right. from the conference, which um, uh, I sent out on Twitter. And by the time you hear this, I'm assuming a week or two will have passed. So uh, you can refer back to Twitter, and uh, that one is. Uh, I guess it's the pound symbol, AAS conference. And you do a search for that. You should pull up all the uh, tweets that came from the conference. There's other people who actually got into it. I, I started a trend, apparently. And uh, not only that, but, uh, well, so far, uh, oh, sound effects in the background. Uh, so far, that, uh, it's probably the most interesting news we've come across, but uh, I hope to, mm-hmm. like I said, hope to catch her and figure out uh, exactly the details. Yep. Yep. And uh, so, shall we? Move on to the next one. Move on to the next <coughs> sessions of uh, excitement. Sure. Okay. Go. Well. Uh, okay. You, so yours I, uh, was actually interesting. So go. Yeah, ahead. it was actually interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I had actually. Uh, I'm going to find the book here, but uh, actually, I recorded three of the four, and I really regret not recording the first. That was, I believe, his name is Patrick Heinrich, uh, from. Is it a Japanese university? Let me uh, pull the info up here. Language ideologies in Japan: power and identities. Uh, yeah, the first one was uh, Patrick Heinrich from Tokyo University, and. Uh, he was an actually a really interesting, engaging, and energetic speaker. And uh, his particular uh, one was language revitalization ideologies in the Ryukyus. And uh, basically, his his general con- thing was talking about uh, the the status of Okinawan as a language or as a, uh, as you call it, a. Uh, grab my notes here. Uh, let's see. Okay, here we go. So uh, now that I'm, yeah, Patrick Heinrich of uh, Tokyo University. Uh, Basically, he, he has this lot of things about uh, language ideology, which seemed to be this sort of weird concept that I, I couldn't really wrap my head around. Uh, but uh, basically, he was looking at uh, the language and the, the I, I guess you could say, argument between uh, Okinawan being a language versus a dialect. And he didn't seem to either want to or couldn't define the difference between language and dialect. He says some people feel that uh, there's no such thing as a dialect. If it's not standard, then it's still language. My, my thought has always been if... if you can understand it, but it's different, then it's probably a dialect. But uh, but then again, you yeah, have Mandarin kind of versus Cantonese, which uh, Cantonese is considered a, a dialect of Chinese, but it's nearly a completely different language, so sort of a sort of a tough uh, tough one but yeah I, I I don't know. I mean that's getting into heavy linguistic theory, but I, I, I'd I, you know, I could see an argument for Cantonese being its own language, but you know, within Japan there there's well, there is an Okinawan language, but yeah. what people speak in Okinawa is mostly a dialect, I would assume. Although I knew I have known people who can speak Okinawan, so <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe um, you know, if you uh, talk to, I, I guess if if Travis has more of an interest in that, then you can talk to him. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't really have a uh, a knowledge of uh, Okinawan beyond my couple of trips there for for work. Uh, Everybody spoke Japanese, so 
Yeah, even if it was Okinawan accented Japanese, which is nothing more than a dialect, I would assume. But yeah, um, I, you know, overall in Japan, I would have to say that, uh, that if you want to split hairs, then you could even go so far as to say that people speak multiple dialects depending on uh, you know their their social status and what uh, uh, you know who they're talking to. I mean. Sonkego and Kenjogo yeah. can be considered dialects if you really want to get into it like that. But Which would have been a good yeah. question for me to ask if it yeah. had occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> see, this is the problem with me wandering around trying to find yeah. briefings that don't exist. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's see here. We're, uh, we go from there to... Uh, what, is it, what does he do? Uh, yeah, what, what role should uh, Okinawan language play in the culture? And, uh, you know, is it a language or a dialect? And then the concept of language endangerment... Uh, they, they say the languages get downgraded to a dialect in order, and which is disempowering. Hmm. And, uh, which uh, was interesting. I guess it makes sense uh, hmm. in a way. And uh, uh, yeah, so basically, loss of language, loss of power, inequality, representation. Okay, well, interesting. And uh, I've realized there were actually six uh, Okinawan languages. Wow. I, I guess they're uh, linguistically separate. Uh, yeah, so basically it's a, it was this whole thing about, I guess he's a uh, professor he, who is uh, working with uh, the Okinawans to sort of bring back the language. But then they have this weird philosophical debate of, uh, uh, do you preserve the language or the speakers of the language? And is, is preserving the language ignoring the speakers of the language? And just, you know, it gets really out there. But well, I, I guess that's I don't know if you're pervert, preserving the speakers of the language, then, then you know, it's kind of hard to speak the language with uh, formaldehyde uh, all around you. So. <laughs> yeah, you smell um, like Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that was the first one. And anyway, he was, he was a interesting. Uh, he was interesting. He was, uh, an, like I said, an energetic, interesting speaker. Um, let's see what else there was. Oh, the Kokugo ideology was the, uh, the next one. It was not my area of interest. It was basically uh, the Zainichi, or the uh, Koreans that were taken to Japan between 19, I guess, 13 or so until 1945. And uh, basically what he talked about was uh, the uh, how Koreans' view of themselves and their language uh, in Japan, including, you know, definitely including regarding second and third generation Koreans, how that changed over the course of history there. And uh, it's kind of funny, I noticed their attitudes of themselves uh, and their language is shaped by the Japanese uh, view of themselves and their language. So they're, even though they're they're uh, Korean ancestry, they're they're just as influenced by the Japanese culture and language as everyone else. Basically, they're saying, uh, like for example, uh, if uh, you know, I, this is I guess in the, the Zainichi's words, like if I since I don't speak Korean, I don't feel Korean, or Korean language is a necessary condition of being Korean, and. Uh, uh, yeah, so basically that, that sort of ad- that weird Japanese attitude of, of Japanese is a, a race, language, culture, nationality, and identity all rolled into one. Right, sort right. Of that language is an integral part of that. And right, and then so yeah. even though the Zainichi are, are technically Koreans, their whole view of themselves and their language is just totally shaped by Japanese, which is, you know, since they're, they, they're born in Jap- Japan, raised in Japan, That's speak an Japanese. interesting inverse of, of, of what you and I and probably a lot of the listeners have uh, experienced where, you know, if, if you're studying and learning Japanese and uh, uh, as a non-Japanese and, and you know, most people are, are cool with it and, and quite appreciative, but, you know, you run into the to the few who get visibly upset yeah. that you can speak their language. Like, it's a secret, uh, uh, you know, 
se- secret uh, that, uh, that only, it's, it's only the, Japanese it's that technically that, yes. can 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 master. It's that thing know. that makes them special and separates them from. That's you. right. Yeah. That's right. Which uh, you know. I don't. I don't personally is, come across is, that. Is, is what it is. But it, I mean, it's interesting Shoot. that 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 inverts that. Yeah. To say that you know you you know rather than using language to exclude like uh, like like we face in that instance. Um, it's taking it and making it so that okay, you are part of us because this is your language. Well, actually, I think it's the other way around. I think it's uh, the Japanese are like you're not Japanese because you're Korean, but the Koreans are we're not Korean because we don't speak the language. Ah, and that language okay, is interesting. The, and that language is the part. The the language is the main thing that that makes them feel Korean. And so that's coming from the Zainichi Kangokujin. Right, that's them okay. speaking of themselves. So they don't speak Korean, so they don't feel Korean, or right. Korean language is a necessary right. condition of being Korean, right. which is, uh, for Japanese, yeah, if you're Japanese, you have to speak Japanese, which is why they have such a weird view of, of second and third generation Japanese who grew up in America, mm-hmm. you know, American Japanese, because mm-hmm. they don't speak Japanese with, without an accent. They have an accent, and <coughs> they, they can't really get their head around it, and it really messes it. Uh, I, I've heard all sorts of, well, not all sorts, but I've heard a few stories of... Uh, uh, you know, local Japanese. You know, we call them here in Hawaii. Uh, going to Japan and not speaking Japanese or learning Japanese and being treated really poorly because mm-hmm. their the attitude is, "You're Japanese. You should be able to speak Japanese," which I thought was interesting too. I and I don't understand yeah. this whole this obsession I, uh, of the I, Japanese with the language, but <sighs> I guess you can't. I, guess, I don't know. But you know, there's the story that I always love to tell. When I was in college in Japan and uh, I went to a graduation ceremony, we had the. Uh, I guess he was. Uh, he was a, I don't know what you call it, a pastor. Or a, he was a Christian or Catholic priest, I guess. I guess maybe he was a Catholic priest. I don't remember for sure. But okay. he's, he's a white guy, uh, born in Japan. His parents were missionaries. He was born and raised in Japan. So he speaks English and Japanese as a, a literally a native language. So when he speaks Japanese, if, if uh, a Japanese has their back turned, they hear a Japanese person speaking. There's, there's absolutely no accent whatsoever. And when he got up in front of this giant auditorium to do his graduation speech, and it was a... It was uh, the Wesleyan College, I guess. I don't know what, Catholic, Christian, okay. whatever. And so, of course, he's reading from the Bible. He's on the stage reading from the Bible, all this. Everything in Japanese, Japanese Bible. Wouldn't happen to be Lutheran, because this sounds very similar to a guy that I know from Kumamoto who's Lutheran. Uh, you, uh, oh, this was in Nagasaki, so I don't, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so he, so people were literally squirming in their seats and really, mm. really goofy, ridiculous stuff. It was, mm. it was hilarious and horrifying at the same time, I yeah. guess you could say. So... Anyway, yeah, Japanese have this, well, it's common knowledge that Japanese have this weird, you know, concept of their own language, but it's, all, it's also interesting to see it in, you know, in yeah, action. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think anybody who's spent a significant amount of time over there has similar stories, you know. I, I remember when I was a student traveling to Nikko, I, I was, was with a, uh, a guy who was, a, he was an English, he was a Nisei, uh, English teacher, didn't speak a lick of Japanese, and so we walked into the restaurant to order lunch, and you know, of course, the waitress turns to him because she sees the Japanese face, and uh, he Probably looks the at entire me. Conversation. Yeah, he looks <laughs> at me, and 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 so I start ordering for the two of us, and and just the waitress, you know, couldn't. You could see the the does not compute. I get that from the, uh, the Jap- uh, Jap- <laughs> Japan yeah. Airlines stewardesses all the time. Yeah, they're they're sort of like the stepped wives of the airplane, and they don't. <laughs> they just you can see the springs popping out of the side of their head yeah. like the fembots on. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, okay. So, so okay, that covers that one. Uh, the next one was really, well, I mean, it was interesting. It was, uh, I wouldn't say, uh, it was pretty interesting. It was, uh, I guess her name was Sugimori Noriko, and she was from Kalamazoo College. I, I, Kalamazoo? Kalamazoo, Michigan? Michigan, maybe yeah. it is. Yeah, it must be Michigan. Uh, she was doing Imperial Honorifics and Egalitarian Society. 
And okay. basically she talked about how uh, the, the words that referred to and were used by the emperor were bit drastically cut out and changed or removed. Either, let's see, they were either abolished, replaced, or kept. Uh, and so it basically goes from... Uh, I, I think this sort of ties into everyone's heard the story about how when the uh, emperor did his radio announcement to the Japanese people, you know, we surrender. Mm-hmm. All the Japanese people who heard him speak uh, had trouble understanding him because he was speaking like an archaic form of Japanese. Mm-hmm. So basically, I, I guess it's that type of honorifics that they, they abolished, uh, right. which is also apparently, I, I guess, was because the uh, occupational forces wanted to sort of rem- uh, cut down on the... the Distance, or the, the or the, the language distance, that made them so much higher than right, everyone else, right. I suppose. And so it was a, kind of interesting that she gave some examples of the words. I guess uh, like the the body of the emperor was originally, I think it was Seitai, which I guess was uh, Seisho and Karada, so mm-hmm. Seitai, and then it just changed to Karada. And other examples like face was uh, uh, I don't I don't know how you pronounce it, but it was a Teng, you know, like Tengoku no Ten, okay, and Kao. Was orig- and then when they and then they just changed it to Kao, you know. So there were various uh, various words that were used by the emperor and or in reference to the emperor were again either abolished, replaced, or kept. And in all, there were 102 words abolished, uh, 134 replaced with uh, common words that are considered honorific, and then there were 68 that were actually kept. And uh, I have no idea what this means. Uh, but maybe you have an idea. But uh, between 1880, so what she did was she looked at the Yomiuri Shimbun from 1874 to 1991. Right. And the largest use of these particular honorific words were between 1880 to 1904 and then 1928 to 1945. Now, I guess it, it maybe this is mm. one during the most nationalistic times of Jap- Japan's recent history. Yeah, interesting. I, I mean, uh, 1880 to 1904. Four obviously would have been uh, the, uh, the the middle to end of the towards the end of the Meiji. And so maybe maybe after period. the Russo-Japanese War, they felt okay, we're there, so we don't need to be so nationalistic for yeah, a while. And then yeah, well, you know, they they had built international credibility, so maybe the newspaper focused more on domestic things. And then, of course, 1928 through 1945 would be the uh, the ramp up, and then. Uh, uh, you know, World War II, and of course, all, all the, the yeah. wartime. Although I, I don't personally see a co- uh, connection between nationalism and honorifics in Imperial Japanese, so I, I'm not really sure why <laughs> why that's there. But. Well, I, I could see it in terms of, you know, more, not necessarily how you refer to the emperor, but perhaps they're referring to the emperor more. Yeah, Maybe they're actually, not changing yeah, what yeah. they're saying uh, you know, in those periods as opposed to outside of those periods. Maybe they're just more articles about the emperor and how wonderful he is and how he's going to lead us all to domination over you know, the white man and, <laughs> and etc. Cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you, you have more articles in those periods and, of course, any article in during that period that references the emperor is going to use those particular honorifics. That, yeah. that would be my correlation. Yeah, I mean, unless I was missing something, and, you know, this was in English, it wasn't in Japanese, so it wasn't a language issue. I'm just wondering if maybe I was missing something. But, uh, yeah, it was basically it was about that. She actually, like, literally hand-counted, you know, however mm. many, uh, you know, the occurrences of the words. There's an, I guess in 1947 is when it, it, it happened. It was listed in the newspaper. They had the words that were... You know, abolished, changed, and replaced. And actually, this is where it came about that I didn't even realize. And actually, I guess it was in the next one. But uh, as an aside, the uh, Joyo kanji were bumped from uh, 1,945 to 2,136, uh, November 30th, 2010, which I had no idea. 
There you go. Yeah, my, my old Joyo Kanji you, uh, dictionary Jap- is now... No, uh, all you Japanese <laughs> students better be get cracking on that extra 100 or plus kanji. Yeah, I guess it's like 90, 97, I don't know, 90, whatever. But uh, so that was that one. And it was, it was interesting. Uh, and then the next one, the last one was uh, Watanabe Noriko. And she is with... Oh, her English was near perfect, so she must be at yeah, City University of New York, which I guess is SUNY. I believe I could be wrong, but uh, hers was individual identities, envisioned personal names, and Japanese script. And she talked about uh, basically the list of kanji for personal names, uh, the things about uh, you know the mandates for what you can use, what you can't use, how things are approved, and the process. Uh, of course, there's also like the infamous in 1993 the case of the family that wanted to name their son Akuma. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. That, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, they, um, they for <laughs> any listeners who don't understand. Uh, what, what are they? What did they translate it as? Demon. Demon. Yeah. And apparently, what they did was they uh, eventually the the court or I don't know if it was a court, but they were like, no, you can't do it. It's so funny they changed the name to Aku. Yeah. So basically, the, they changed, and then eventually, I guess he, they changed the name altogether, probably because of all the press and everything. So you know, I don't know why I do that, but basically, uh, there were a lot of questions I wanted to ask, and but I couldn't quite formulate the way I, I wanted to ask. And I know for the uh, for Patrick Heinrich, I wanted to ask him uh, kind of. See, I wanted to ask him. Um, at what point does a language become a dialect? Uh, but since he he kind of has this philosophical or conceptual stance that it could you know a, a dialect could be considered a language, so if they're not mutually exclusive, then I guess you can't really say when one becomes another. So I I didn't bother with that question. Uh, for uh, Noriko Watanabe, uh, who did the uh, <coughs> kanji and names, I was actually going to ask a question, but the uh, someone asked before me. Basically, they asked her what she would do if. In regards to uh, the restrictions on naming conventions, the restrictions on kanji, I, I was uh, I was going to ask. They, they asked her what she would do. She basically said, as a linguist, she doesn't know if she has the uh, the right or the the. Uh, I'm not really sure to to actually just go in and say what you should or shouldn't be able to do. Uh, but she kind of dodged the question, I guess. But I, well, I mean, her her role as a linguist is is less to try to it's more to say, report than yeah, to, it's yeah. to you know report and analyze, not yeah. necessarily dictate. So. Which is essentially what she said. Yeah. But I was going to actually, you know, because I know I think the book was Freakonomics actually, where uh, they were they were doing, uh, you know, they're looking at people with particular names, like for example, names that could be overly ethnic. Ah, uh, yes, yes, I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've, I've read that book. And, and, and Yeah, I actually just started reading it. I haven't actually got to this point, but I have heard about it. But, uh, you know, p- people who get those type of names or maybe just bizarre names, like, I don't know, Jermaine Jackson's son, Jim Majesty. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Or, or Apple, for example. And how it affects their employment yeah, how it basically inf- possibilities. Yeah, and their, and their so social on. and or yeah. economic status or whatever for the rest of their lives. And so I was going to ask her if, uh, if in, in, based on this, if in her opinion, uh, actually the... Uh, the Japanese mandate about uh, naming conventions, if maybe that if that's actually a positive thing, or what her thoughts were on that, and particularly when you have parents who try to name a kid Akuma, and uh, yeah. so and also I was going to kind of ask her opinion on uh, just Japanese in general, if if the general uh, population what their uh, stance is on this, if they're just like that's the way it's been, so that's so we accept it, if their shogunized society just sort of uh, extends that far, or if they they would like to be able to have more freedom in name choosing, yeah, I don't know. But I didn't really ask because she kind of was already roughly asked that when they asked her uh, what what her thoughts were on the mandate of naming. So that pretty much covers uh, that covers that one. And uh, so what did I know you uh, you you had a bit of an adventure? Um, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it it ended up not being what I exactly thought it was going to be. Um, I I tried to go. Well, I did go eventually to. Uh, 
the uh, the roundtable discussion on Buddhist warfare, which uh, I, I actually had considered, but we we both kind of decided if it was basically just monks setting themselves on fire in protest, then <laughs> yeah, I, I was hoping obviously for some sort of connection to. Um, you know, Sohei and uh, uh, Buddhist warfare in uh, but the the presentations of you know mainly based around Southeast Asia, kind of either either. Well, see, that's the thing in the uh, in the, in the the book. It didn't really tell you anything. It just said roundtable discussion on this. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, you know, of course, I, w- I was hoping that there was some connection to the Ikoiki or to Sohei or, or, or something like that. Um, I, I got there, and apparently, it was a group that had written a book on Buddhist warfare, contemporary Buddhist warfare, in uh, um, you know, as a as a counterpoint to the common image of uh, Buddhism as this pacifist uh, philosophy well, slash religion. Like Buddhists who who pick up guns. And Essentially, go to war. yes, Buddhists who pick up guns and go to war. Huh. Um, which that isn't what I expected. So had the potential to be interesting, but um, didn't really look like the, it was going to go somewhere that I, I wanted to sit through. And uh, especially so you walked. Yeah, especially <laughs> when there's other things that I could be listening to. So I walked and um, tried to go to the session on uh, maritime security in Northeast Asia. And I got there, and there was a bunch of people sitting in the room, and no presenters. And uh, um, I guess they, I don't know, were hopeful, but I waited around for five minutes, and nobody showed up. So, so maybe a case of stage fright or something. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, um, couldn't pull themselves out of a uh, restaurant for lunch or, or whatever. <laughs> so I ended up going to... They, they, they probably ate at Chokudo. Yeah, might have. <laughs> Considering how long they waited. They're still they waiting on their check. <laughs> um... <laughs> So I went to, ended up going to uh, a session called uh, Digital Archives and the Study of Japanese Foreign Relations, which uh, proved to be fairly interesting. Um, the, uh, the presenters were uh, Robert uh, es- Eskildsen from uh, Obedian University, uh, and his uh, topic was an analysis of the Japanese army sent to Taiwan in 1874. Um, then uh, there was a... Takeshi uh, Hamashita from uh, Ryukoku University uh, doing Connecting Histories in Cross-Pacific Regions 1850-1880 Archival Historiography on the U.S.-East Asian Relations from Ryukyu uh, or uh, Okinawan uh, Perspectives um, and, Well, I, I guess I'll talk about those two quickly I, I ended up walking in about uh, I guess halfway through uh, Eskildsen's uh, presentation on uh, Taiwan, but he was using, uh, he was discussing uh, different uh, troop figures and their breakdown. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about this session was that it was, it, while each of these presenters was talking about what their own research was, the, the common thread was that they were all um, using uh, primary documents uh, that had been scanned and archived by the uh, Japan Center for Asian Historical Records. Uh, which is a, I guess, a uh, suborganization of the National Archives of Japan, mm. and uh, they had all kinds of wonderful handouts that uh, I'll uh, I'll put up on the website. And uh, um, uh, I'll, I'll, the website, if you're interested in going to, is uh, www.jacar.go.jp, uh, and it, it appears to have an English interface that uh, you can look up records if if you would like. And, um, and I, I guess this might may, but we don't know for sure. Include the uh, the imperial uh, histories of the Meiji era. Yeah, what it, what it the little handout that they passed out says that uh, the sources of material on the website 
um, provides uh, following documents held by three archival institutions, uh, National Archives of Japan, uh, the Diplomatic Record Office of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and the Library of the National Institute of Defense Studies uh, of the Ministry of Defense. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, which I would guess most people are, the National Institute of Defense Studies is, is essentially the Japanese uh, self-defense forces version of the War College. Um, so anyway, that kind of tied all this together. So Eskildson's uh, presentation, he was showing how he used, uh, you know, uh, troop rosters and and uh, so forth out of uh, the, this resource uh, to uh, to inform his his research on a, uh, the breakdown of the army and uh, personnel numbers and so forth that were, was sent to Taiwan in 1874. Um, yeah, so then the next one was the uh, the uh, Takeshi Hamashita uh, about the uh, Ryukyu Islands uh, and the Ryukyu Kingdom and, and its um, international correspondence and uh, so forth. And so he was using uh, copies of treaties signed by, for instance, uh, Commodore Perry uh, signed a treaty with the Ryukyus. Uh, the king of the Ryukyu Islands to guarantee safety of American sailors and to provide them fair prices for when their ships landed that they could get supplies and 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 so on and so forth. So, um, it, you know, it was interesting. I, I guess mostly for the, uh, the the use of the archival stuff. But if you if you know, a lot of people are into uh, Okinawan studies, especially here in Hawaii. And uh, so it was interesting to see because I I had thought. Um, and, and perhaps I've just been turnbalized, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but I, I had thought that uh, the, the Japanese by this point, and, and keep in mind this is the middle of the 1800s, I, I thought uh, pretty much that the Ryukyus had been uh, you know, brought under Japanese control by this point. So it was interesting to hear about them, about their independent uh, correspondence with the U.S. and France and Russia and China uh, and that in many ways they still operated as an independent country. So, Although I, did, I thought um, they did fall under Satsuma though. I, see, I thought they did too, but apparently there was some... Hmm. Uh, they didn't quite see it that way. See, this is where Travis um, would be... Uh, yeah, talk, so, talk so you, you'll, you'll, you'll want to hit him up and uh, see what his take was what his take is on it, but uh, so th- that was the enlightening portion of it for me. And, and uh, um, each of these presenters actually put their slides out in handout form, so we can upload those to the, uh, hmm. um, you know, to, to the Samurai Archives and the blog and or people wherever, can, yeah. yeah, people can take a look at them themselves. Um, anyway, then the uh, the, the next uh, presenter was uh, Ken Kotani of the uh, National Institute of Defense Studies, as I said, the, uh, the Japanese version of the War College. Uh, and, and his talk was on uh, the U.S.-Japanese negotiations in 1941 and signals intelligence. And so he used um, the, this uh, archival database to pull out uh, records of uh, signals intelligence. Um, so not only uh, cables that were sent back and forth between, uh, like, say, for instance, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and uh, the, uh, the the Ministry of the Army, um, or you know the, the the government in Tokyo, or um, you know internal Ministry of Foreign Affairs from Tokyo to DC, or to, from Tokyo to, to to Germany and and London and so forth, um, and that were also intercepted by U.S. and British uh, intelligence agencies, and then read and used to inform. Uh, 
uh, you know, U- U.S. and British policymaking and, and stance towards Japan, but also Japanese intercepts of U.S. and, and British uh, communications that were, the, you know, used in policymaking on the Japanese side. And, and what I thought was most interesting in it was uh, when you compare the actual transmissions of what uh, was sent by the, for instance, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from point A to point B, and then the, the American intercept and translation of it, and how there were many, many errors in translation. And so then the, the English version that you know went before Secretary of State Cordell Hull uh, and, and influenced his decision-making and then therefore President Roosevelt's decision-making was flawed. And that flaw considerably altered the course of the decision-making and how the U.S. reacted to Japan prior to uh, Pearl Harbor and prior to, you know, in, in, in the diplomatic phase of, of everything going on, whereas a, a correct interpretation, correct translation may have caused a different result and not pushed mm-hmm. things to the point that, you know, and, and that's, that's getting into a little uh, too much speculation for my taste to, <laughs> to take it quite yeah. to that point. But it, it is interesting to see that, uh, and, and again, I'll, I'll po- uh, we can post the slides, but uh, um, it was interesting to see how, especially for me, given my... Um, my background and uh, and and profession, how translation done poorly <laughs> can seriously alter uh, decision making at, uh, at 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 the highest at, at the highest levels. <laughs> so um, that, that was that was particularly interesting. Uh, and then the the last one uh, was uh, a, a professor uh, Kanji Akagi uh, from Akeo University. Uh, and he gave a presentation on Japan's war aims during the Pacific War, and, and again, you know, brought in uh, source material from this particular website. I mean, it was it was one long commercial uh, for uh, the uh, uh, Japan Center for Asian Historical Records, and, <laughs> and kind of, I, I mean, to be perfectly honest, by this point, I'd I'd kind of okay, I got it. You know, go check this out, do some research, and I, I was already looking for uh, uh, ways that I could get on it to uh, to see if they have copies of the uh, Imperial Japanese Army's uh, uh, official histories in, of uh, Japanese military uh, history to include uh, Nagashino and Okehazama, uh, and how I could get my hands on those because uh, that would be relevant mm. to my own research, but. Um, so, I, if, I, if for no other reason than to show the 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 the, the incorrect information, well, <laughs> specifically for that that reason, I mean, one of the research things that I'm working on right now is is to show the uh, is to trace how the the misconceptions that were first put forth in the Shinchoki by uh, Oze Hoan then made it into pretty much the official canon of uh, Nagashino. Uh, you know, and giving us eventually on the the uh, on the ridiculous end of things the uh, battle scene in Kagemusha, but uh, <laughs> on, on the on the golf course, yeah, yeah, um, the, or the soccer field, whichever it was, <laughs> the, the big flat expanse of land in Canada. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so so that was interesting to me, um, but. You know, working on that I, and, and thinking about that, I, I kind of lost track of what what uh, Professor Akagi was was going into uh, in his brief. But uh, again, I've got the slides for anybody who's interested. We'll make sure that uh, we make those available through the website. So, um, overall, 
you did know, you, some, uh, some did you come up with any questions uh, for them or that you may have asked had you had the chance? Or? You know, I, I didn't um, because by the time that they got done uh, with each of the presenters, they had a little bit of time left for questions, but uh, the, there was already a queue. Which seems to be pretty typical here. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got what I needed out of it from... You know, okay. Here's this uh, website, and uh, and uh, that you can use to to pull up or gain access to um, official, you know, original, well, scans slash slash so forth of, of original source documents. Yeah. Um. So, uh, you know, my my interest in their individual presentations was was. I mean, they were interesting, but they were. They weren't really anything that I would. Well, you know, the, the, the guy that uh, I guess he was the War College guy that did the the Signals Corps and all mm-hmm. that. Uh, I recently listened to I believe it's the Pritz, I can't think of the name Pritzker Military Podcast or Pritzker or something like that. Pritzker. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I, I posted on the the forum uh, about it, and it's in Twitter too. But uh, basically, there, there was an American guy whose name I can't remember right now uh, who basically moved to Japan specifically to befriend and uh, interview Japanese pilots who fought from before Pearl Harbor all the way to the end of the war. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I remember yeah, seeing your post. That was really, really interesting. Yeah. But he, one of the things that he, he you know, got into was a lot of the pilots who survived Pearl Harbor and, uh, you know, survived in the modern day basically were uh, saying they were, they were disappointed that it was a sneak attack and they, and, uh, they didn't, I think, if it's my understanding, I think they thought that war had been declared or war was intended to be declared, but hmm. that information hadn't reached... America in time, so for Pearl Harbor to be anything other than a sneak attack, and uh, which uh, which seemed pretty interesting uh, that they had intended to declare a war, but uh, and, yeah. and didn't put it off for Pearl Harbor. It just didn't get to the right channels in time for Pearl well, Harbor. Well, there's there was there's a lot of um, which is why they're, um, they they basically the pilots uh, if essentially you do research into that, which I I did for a while in uh, in in college. I, I had a class that that looked at some of this stuff, but. Uh, um, if if you look at it, w- there was a lot of diplomatic miscommunication on the Japanese side. Well, in in, in between the Japanese and Americans, um, but uh, you know, part of it was that the message was sent uh, to the embassy at uh, in Japan, and but they had recent. I if and of course somebody who's listening to this is gonna get upset because I, I'm misspeaking or whatever, but <laughs> this is this is out of my recollection from probably 15 years ago. Um, the codes had recently been changed, or for whatever reason, um, the normal decoding process took longer than... Um, than it should have. Mm. Um, normally, the... the their, their Enigma machine was on the first. I, I guess. <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Um, you know, Toshi down in the basement was... Uh, was translating incorrectly or whatever. But, um, so Obscure they, uh, reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slip that one in. Um, so, bottom line is, they were supposed to deliver uh, the message that uh, hi, we're declaring war on youth. Okay, thanks, bye. Um, <laughs> with it, with a cat that says laws. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we declare with war with a many can echo. Okay, thanks, bye, Good. lols. Lols. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> They were they were they were supposed to deliver that, and the message got delayed so that they, and then um, so that they went to go deliver it. And by the time that they actually had handed the the message over, Pearl Harbor had already happened. 
Um, so, you know, there, there's, there's, there's that. I don't know whether that's. Well, no. The uh, one thing he was saying that, was that the pilots felt, uh, you know, who who have then been to Pearl Harbor, you know, talked to the veterans there, kind of be- made peace with everything and mm-hmm. befriended the veterans. Mm-hmm. They said they were they were, I guess, uh, saddened and and sort of hurt by being considered terrorists because they felt they were just doing their job as part of the Japanese military. And it's actually interesting. The sure, uh, sure. the 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 airmen seem to be, you know, that that seems to be the more most reasonable part of the Japanese military, whereas the army just seemed to be willy nilly and crazy. <laughs> well, the army was a bunch of wackos um <laughs> and i'll go on record with that but the uh <laughs> well i mean the airmen um, seem to be it seem to be like the true military uh i don't know what the word is uh, uh, uh culture i guess yeah well i i mean i don't know i don't At least know the, i mean the, the, the ija the, to 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 um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to put a link that, to the podcast along um, with the uh, yeah the pod, that podcast sounds like it would be very interesting yeah, actually the, the book uh, i plan on getting the book too it's a uh, not available on Kindle though. So okay, most of the most of the um, uh, most of the, uh, the the World War II veterans from the Japanese side that I've met, and I've actually met quite a few. Um, you know, a, a zero pilot who was uh, shot down and captured by the Americans over Peleliu uh, when I was a student, and then um, in my uh, liaison capability uh, capacity in uh, Kumamoto um, at several of uh, Giatai events, um, I met uh, former. Uh, Imperial Japanese service members, uh, uh, including a, uh, a pair of, uh, I, I don't know if you would say failed or aborted, but um, kamikaze, uh, kamikaze pilots. The fact that they're there who, means... Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, who, who I, I, you know, I, I guess from what I can gather, just simply they were in the queue and just not used uh, prior to uh, the war ending. But, uh, you know, it was interesting to get their perspectives, and they're, and they're very... Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. They have they have uh, perspective on, on what all happened. And, uh, you know, when when you're in the military, uh, I mean, even in, my, in the U.S. military, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of caught in the dual situation of, uh, you know, required to follow orders, and uh, the government makes policy, you just execute it. But at the same time, uh, you know, in the, in the U.S., I mean, we... we train our officers and, and so forth to uh, critically evaluate what's going on and to be students of uh, not only history but uh, international affairs and, and and understand why we're doing what we're doing and go to great lengths to, to make sure that that's, that's understood. So, um, But, I mean, I can certainly see, you know, from, from their perspective, uh, um, you know, if, if you're taught from birth one thing, then... There's, you know, we, we see it with militant Islam today. Well, you know, why question, you know, if if there's no alternative presented to you, um, that's that's what things are. So I, I don't know, kind of getting off track here, but uh, um, anyway, that that was a, the last one I attended, and then um, anyway, and I think this is the, a good. Uh, uh, there's uh, actually one more. Though. Uh, I got it. Uh, negotiating one's place in Japan's long 16th century. Yeah. So we've got, uh, let's see, David Spafford, University of Washington. So many choices and so few options for local warriors. Uh, actually, uh, Luke Roberts, uh, who wrote uh, Mercantilism in a Japanese uh, Domain about Tosa. And he also wrote uh, 18th, I think it's 18th century uh, ballot box in Tosa. He's written quite a lot of Tosa-related papers and books. So uh, his is Warrior Conflicts with Their Daimyo in Early 17th Century Japan. So I'm assuming it's probably going to have something to do with uh, the change of power, maybe, between the Chosokabe and the uh, Yamanuchi, maybe. Perhaps, that's, yeah. That's my guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. There's a... This land is my land, Masuda, Motonaga, well, actually, and the politics of territorial the, uh, redistribution abstracts. in Choshu Domain. 
Uh, anyway, we'll we'll be talking about those when we finish, and uh, I I hope to record all of those. So yeah. Yep. Okay. That Let's, that works. Yeah, we'll 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 get back we'll to get you. Back. So assuming if we, assuming we can, if not, that's a wrap.